0: Be comfortable with not knowing, be comfortable with not being the expert in the room, being comfortable, being transparent and honest where you are related to stuff. I mean, when I started off, when I actually got the job, I know we'll probably talk about this later, but Dana in security, I was very transparent. Look, I don't, this is very new to me and it's going to take, it's going to be a learning process for me. But I think the most critical part was just being comfortable with being uncomfortable, (laughs) if that
1: makes any sense. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Mike Kelly, CISO at the EW Scripps Company. Mike got his start in the big four as an auditor, then made the massive jump from individual contributor to GRC and security team leader, and agreed to it over lunch. Mike looks back on his decisions and shares why balancing transparency with ambition is integral to success. As a leader, you'll never know all of the answers, but admitting that can be difficult. So when should you accept a role for which you are not 100% qualified? How should a leader assist their team with career progression? And why is fake it till you make it such bad career advice? Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. If you would, for the uninitiated, please introduce yourself. Yeah, sure.
0: Thanks, Steve. Appreciate you having me. So, my name is Mike Kelly, I'm the Chief Information Security Officer at the EW Scripps Company. Uh, My role there is basically enterprise security as
1: well as consumer-facing security, so all aspects of cybersecurity. Let's spend a second on that. What's the main, because not everyone has that charter, and I wasn't planning on asking you this, but I think it's worth covering. Consumer-facing security, in your role, uh, how is that defined or how is it different than internal for those that might not have that charter or that responsibility? Yeah, so I mean, it's not like really defined but it's certainly
0: something that i've got to worry about. so what what that means i mean our companies evolved over the years but you know tr- traditional enterprise security is keeping the inner you know keeping the enterprise secure their workers secure our workloads secure but consumer facing security the things that are directly facing our consumers so uh, many years ago we had a podcast company so making sure that cloud workloads things that were relative to the customer that was all part of the really part of the charter that's uh, unofficial but as part of the role.
1: Interesting. Is there a, I mean, if I'm understanding it correctly, that's more, you know, you're getting more into the infrastructure, code security, uh, supply chain, all the rest of that, that all what that would ride and depend on. I was just curious because we get on the show, we get so many different, different types of CISOs and so many different kinds of listeners that are contemplating moving into these roles or just not exposed to the the variables that include this position, which is kind of the interesting thing in, in security in general. It's never the same company to company. So, hey, so you didn't get your start there. You started in KPMG. What were you doing there? Yeah. So KPMG, I started off, this was back in
0: 2004. This was really shortly after the uh, um, Sarbanes-Oxley regulation came out and everyone was kind of scrambling to one get compliant, then two, uh, somebody had to audit them. So, you know, fortunately for me, KPMG was uh, all the big four firms were really in a in a hiring tear, just trying to get enough resources to do all the external audits. And I happened to get lucky enough to to get my number called, and um, was doing external audits for almost two years, a little actually, maybe a little over two years. It was primarily external audits, but that was. The gist of my role. For the most part, there were a few consulting engagements, more from a compliance perspective, preparing people for compliance. But ultimately, the, the vast majority of my work
1: was external auditing for Sarbanes Oxley. From a career perspective, starting out doing that, again, back to my earlier point that I made, we're all on a different journey. We all start in different places. Some of us started off as sysadmins, you know, you were at, at a consulting firm uh, and everything in between. How do you think that that, as as the first, my memories of my first IT jobs, for whatever reason, are still very vivid in my mind. That was your first. What do you take away from working in audit? Probably a hectic pace, probably crazy hours, probably people that really honestly needed to get the work done, but weren't that excited that you were there, frankly. what is what's that do to sort of temper your beginning as ultimately someone who becomes a CISO? yeah I mean, you've made some actually very
0: critical points. Um, I mean, the big part of it for me was the fast pace. um yeah, I felt like I was drinking from the fire hose at the time. you were we were moving from company to company industry to industry. So it wasn't like I was specialized in one industry. Um, back then, um there were so many clients that needed um, external audits that they didn't have any time to specialize. We didn't have time to specialize in you know retail or finance or manufacturing. So I got exposure to a wide variety of companies. And I think, you know, that, that constant change, that constant learning is what early really helped me out and what really appealed me, you know, my appeal to cybersecurity was the same thing as you have to constantly be learning. Um, and, and you're right. The other aspect of it is no one wanted us to be there, right? <laughs> no one wants the external auditor to come in and and, um, and ask them a bunch of questions, especially in IT, you know, finance was always accustomed to having an audit, but IT, this was brand new. Someone asking them what they're doing. So, you know, you immediately had people who who really didn't want you there, number one. They're wondering why you're asking all these questions. And then um you, you kinda had to build a relationship and rapport with people, um, in difficult situations. And, you know, in cybersecurity we gotta deal with that all day. Um, it's it's difficult conversations. So I think that that prepared me a lot and the pace of change, the the rapid, um, you know, a lot of hours spent, um, learned probably four years and two years.
1: That's what you said earlier that you felt like you're sort of learning double. Do you think if there's someone listening who is doing audit work of some type right now, I mean, would you do it again? Would you have that as your start? I mean, obviously you can't go back and replay that, but are you cool with that as your start? Do you think that was a good foundation or would you Is there something you wish you would have added to that? Maybe that's a better way to think of it or ask the question.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm happy. I think the start where it began really made sense for me at the time anyways. But yeah, if I was to add something to it, something additive, it would have been to try to get more engaged in the, you know, the security aspects. Unfortunately, SOX just does not drive security. It's not a lot of security related. I mean, it's very basic. It's process oriented questions. But I would have tried to dive a little deeper into there, maybe find chances to do consulting engagements where they may have had security. Unfortunately,
1: we're just, they told you where to go and you went. Right. Right. Correct. I think that's a, so if I can pull on that thread a little bit, it sounds like that there was items that, you know, while maybe some of your, if you sit at a round table today, some of the folks that you're going to sit with, were building servers or evaluating firewall rule sets while you were looking at, at the SOX audit. Both come with their own skill sets and their own life experiences and career experiences, but you would have preferred you've added that. So I guess the lesson would be maybe for those that are in a similar boat right now to try to maneuver and spend some time doing some security audit specific work would be your general recommendation or, or no?
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, now you can do that. Back then, there just wasn't a lot of that work and you had to be a part of the consulting arm. But, you know, I think taking control of your career would have been something I would have tried to do. Uh, back then, honestly, I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So it wasn't until later when I started seeing where security was going. I mean, I saw security was kind of, even back then, slowly, gradually. I mean, it was probably about four or five years after my work there when I really saw it take off. But I saw the pendulum swinging that security is going to become more important than compliance.
1: Now, you told me in our earlier conversation, I think it's interesting. I think it's a product of what you've described so far is that you've kind of have a mental model of how to adapt quickly. I'm guessing that that's somewhat of a product of bouncing around from client to client at KPMG or is that more of a derivative of more modern experience? I think the, the mental model piece of it is interesting and useful. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, when I say mental model, it's more like just an, probably inherent. <laughs> it's not like I have a structured process for it, but it's really just the abil- ability to adapt rapidly, right? And, and, and be comfortable with not knowing, be comfortable with not being the expert in the room, being comfortable being transparent. And honest where you are related to stuff. I mean, when I started off, when I actually got the job, I know we'll probably talk about this later, but Dana in security, I was very transparent. Look, I don't, this is very new to me and it's going to take, it's going to be a learning process for me. But I think the most critical part was just being comfortable
1: with being uncomfortable. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Absolutely does. So we're going to get to Dana. Don't worry. I think that's in- an interesting kind of moment in your career. But I think even though you don't have a mental model, I think you you could kind of outline one there. And it's, from what I heard, it is, first off, being okay. And this is the, this is the tough one for a lot of security people. Effectively saying that, I don't know, is really the thing you, you say, hey, I, I'm, I'm unaware of all these details, or I've not done this before, but I have a, a confidence to tell you that. And furthermore, I have uh, prior results that would inform you that I can still complete this task. So you're having an element of transparency, maybe even humility, but also some confidence woven in there that I can sort of adapt quickly. And I think it also, as you do more of that, you get more experience at going into the career unknown or the project unknown. And the reason why I call this out is for several years of my career, I made my career on that give me the thing that's unknown and on fire and that also aligned a little bit with my personality at the time i used to have a little more of a a combustible temperament as as the, as the listeners have heard me mention in the past where you kind of have that extra enthusiasm and they're willing to sort of send you off cuz you're sort of trouble yourself and so they're willing to send you off into trouble i'm not saying that was ever your that's very similar there so it's hey this former farm kid raised by a former special forces guy. It's kind of wild, feral. Let's send him off, right? He's not polished all the way, but he can go he can go rough in a solution, right? So I think that's the mental model is a way and I think you can adopt that. I, I didn't start with that. I think that's the important thing for the listener. And I'd like to see if you have anything to add to that is it sounds like you're born that way or you you are you have that inherent. But I I think you can build that skill set and become that person. I firmly believe it that you can get comfortable saying. I had to get comfortable saying, "I don't know, I'm not sure, but we're going to figure that out." Right? What are your thoughts on that?
0: Oh, I, I totally agree. You could, I mean, I think anything's learnable, teachable. I see it my own daughter, my middle daughter. I mean, she's she thinks she can't do anything, and then you know she's in gymnastics, and she'll do a routine that she's never even tried to accomplish before. So I mean, I think it's 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 just something you just you can learn with anything. You just got to push yourself out there. and push boundaries and be be afraid to don't be afraid to fail, right? I think that's the big
1: part. It's interesting. It's it's interesting what we lose. I don't know that I was ever this way, but you look at you talking about your daughter, how they're willing to often have no filter and often have almost no fear and willing to like, in the example of gymnastics, flip around upside down like were today, we wouldn't do it. We wouldn't probably even try it, but we'd also hurt ourselves. But the fact that, so, I mean, I think that there's an element, especially from a coaching perspective and from a leadership perspective is, it sounds a little corny maybe, and I'm, it's early in the morning when we're recording here, but, you know, keep more of that youthful approach too, where a kid will try anything while you're trying to figure out what direction you're going in your career well before you become a security leader, a security, you know, a CISO, whatever it might be to work on that and maybe include that as part of your, this mental model.
0: Yeah, I mean, even as a leader, like uh, that's a good example because, you know, one of the things I try to encourage with my team is that, look, I want you to be comfortable. I don't want you getting so comfortable in what you're currently doing that you're not learning other things. And I've already taken a few of my team members and moved them in different parts of security because they were getting, I could see they were almost getting too comfortable. And I encourage them that, hey, there's this other opportunity here. You know, maybe you should try it out. And we've moved people around that way. And it's actually, you can see them grow once again. You know what I mean? It's kind of like they, they reach a point where you're almost at the top of that curve and then you start eh, kind of getting comfortable. And now it's like, okay, we got this new opportunity. I'd highly encourage you look at it. And you can see that it actually, they find enjoyment in learning those new things as well.
1: Completely agree. If you can align that as part of a career progression plan, even if it's just to round them out, depending on where they are in their career, it's been proven. That, that It does a lot of things, but one of the things it does for the person, but also for the business is uh, aid in retention. It's amazing to me how many security programs don't have a true career development. The only career development plan they have is sort of staring at the next title that's the next one above or the next pay ban. And looking at that level of comfort, the only time this, that you buck the trend is sometimes in technology and you have people who are hyper-focused on, like they're very passionate about Automation or content creation or malware analysis, and you're really not going to buck them off of that because that's their that. So you kind of have to be a little careful there. But I think that that still has a place. You can apply automation to many things. You can apply, you know, malware behavior and adversary behavior to several different frameworks, right? So it's kind of it kind of depends. But I I think looking for people that are becoming too comfortable because uh, there's there's analytic. And there's, there's a bias that begins to form in the minds of the people that are too comfortable as well. That's dangerous from a security standpoint.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I, I've had a failure where maybe I encourage someone to move into something they weren't ready for and that's happened, right? And uh, taking somebody who's a great individual contributor, who is a, an expert in the space, encouraging them to go back. They weren't a manager before, but going back into a manager role did not work out well. Um, and uh, again, I think the transparency the communication between us both helped tease that out. So he was willing to say, Hey, look, I'm just not comfortable doing this anymore. And we, we put him to the back to where he was. But again, I think the important thing was there was a, you know, gave it the old college try. I still think that's important.
1: So I'm going to say something here that is very controversial. And I don't recommend anyone doing this as a leader or really anybody doing it. But there was a point in time, it's sort of funny now, but I was approached myself, I was an individual contributor. Fairly high level title wise. And they want me to take a a director position. And I didn't want to do it. And this was a, this was, geez, a long time ago now, almost 10 years ago, I think. Uh, Not quite 10. Anyway, they wanted me to take this position and didn't want to do it and finally decided to. But my rule was, and I told this to the guy that was my VP at the time, I said, if I fail at this, the mode of the company was if you failed at being a leader, they would roll you back into being an individual contributor. And I didn't like that. I wanted to sort of burn the boats, so to speak, which was an invasion tactic where, so the troops, the invasion force couldn't retreat if it didn't go well. You know, you had to stay. And my burn the boats method was, I said, if I'm not good at a director, just fire me. And I meant it. And they're like, Steve, you're nuts. And I was like, well, that might be the case. I said, but fire me. I said, because I'm not, if I, at the point I make a decision to do this here, you're all in. (laughs) Well, not only all in, but I want everyone else to see how serious this is and the reason why it's so serious is that even if you only do it temporarily and this is again this is bad advice so don't follow this but this is my flawed mindset and i and i'd like your perspective on it my flawed mindset was burn the boats if i'm not good at it fire me don't fold me back in because at the point that i'm a director responsible for lots of lives meaning their career lives their career time their and a bad day at work could mean a bad day at home and if i'm making bad days you know don't fold me back in don't put me back in a safe haven while i've ruined potentially the situation right so it's it's that level of commitment it's a bit extreme and very abstract but it ended up working out okay and then there was a big crisis and there was a big breach and i actually was elevated several times beyond that at that particular company but it's it's something that has stuck with me i don't advise the burn the boats method but what i'm going to put you on the spot for is if you had someone that approached you with the burn the boats method. How would you coach them out of that? How would you make them feel that it's okay to try being a manager or a director? And then how would you manage the expectation of their staff? So the stair step down below them, right? To say, hey, I'm going to try out Steve. And we have an environment here that's not a burn the boats method, right? Or, or it's so how would you coach through that? How would you take that hard headed approach and Make sure that everyone knows that hey, you can try being a leader. Everyone's a leader. You can try being this manager position. How would you approach that? Game plan that with me.
0: Yeah, from a game plan perspective, I think one thing that could have been done to help in my situation and help my employee would would have been to maybe ease them back into it, maybe giving them not direct responsibility but more back responsibility over a few individuals, more day to day responsibility without giving the title. That might have been a way that made a ease the way into that transition. But, you know, from that, burn the boats.
1: You like that? Yeah. I did like that. I made that up on the fly, by the way. Uh...
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, look, at the end of the day, fortunately, our culture at our company is it's, it's really good. It's 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 a culture that, that it, it's really more, I mean, first of all, our, our company's majority owned is by the family. And when you come to Scripps, the typical welcoming message that people would say is welcome to the Scripps family. So I think we've always had that mentality here that I think is important that, look, it's okay to fail, right? Managers won't let you fail big, won't let you fail small, right? And and if there's any problems long, there's just going to be tr- complete transparency. So that, I think that's just the way I would handle that. Look, if, if there's any trouble, if there's any problems, if you're having some significant problems, I'm not going to let it bubble up so it's a disaster. You know, we'll have those conversations earlier to try to
1: fail soft versus failing hard. Absolutely. I think that one thing I'll share, and I may have mentioned this in the past, and I, I think it's important to bring up, though, is that anyone who's getting ready to make a transition into leadership within security or IT, all the things I thought I was going to, that I was really anxious about and really unsure about, and to be clear, you're going to have that list. And, and I, my list was seemingly long. I actually wrote out all the things I was concerned about moving into leadership. It turns out that none of those things mattered. And it was this other unknown list of things that ended up biting me, which is sort of funny uh, or strange. But you mentioned, you know, failing small. I think that's a as a manager and maybe even putting them into a team lead role with responsible for, you know, three or four people, I think is a good move. And I didn't mean to put you on on blast on this particular example. I was saying, like, if I were your employee, you didn't have to, like, cite the other the other prior example. But I think it still works uh, for purposes of this sort of virtual mentorship that we're trying this morning. So let's switch to a little bit different topic. You told me, and I have it in bolded and in quotes. So for those that don't know, I we meet for about a half an hour and I make a, a couple of notes when I have a guest on. And for purposes of having a clean and somewhat coherent show, I'll make you know a handful of notes, kind of a Larry King model of preparing a show. And one of the things I have here for Mike is I have bolded and in double quotes, I fell into cybersecurity, which I am so envious of. Because I tried for three years to get into it and continually failed to even get in. Uh, So I was hell-bent to get in and had my own challenges. And then once I got in, you know, it was a bull in a china shop. But it was, you fell in. Talk about Dana and the beginning of that. Lead into that. I find it amazing. Tell us that story.
0: Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I mean, look, I I was looking for cybersecurity for about three years, too. So (laughs) that was finding ways, in fact, maybe to step back before I even got to Dana. Um, at Scripps, I moved out of compliance or out of audit into the compliance role because the compliance role that organization was tied side by side with security. So I was trying to ease my way and get my stick my nose in cybersecurity, so to speak, for probably about two years, three years. Finally, landed the role in compliance at Scripps. Where I was starting to work a little bit side by side with security. Cause as I said, they were more like peers within the organization.
1: Can I stop you there real quick? What, what time we say compliance, what compliance frameworks were you, were you talking about? Socks.
0: It was all socks, but, but there's elements where we do highlight cybersecurity controls within SOX. So, you know, I was working side by side with the team on the vulnerability analysis stuff and just gradually dipping my toes into it. Didn't know what I was looking at at the time, but <laughs> just trying to get accustomed to it. But yeah, I ended up landing that job at Dana as the um, head of their governance risk compliance. So it was a pretty big move for me, you know, moving the family up to Toledo, sort of a, a bigger risk, new organization, didn't know anybody there. And whew, the, it was the, the weekend before I started, I had lunch with my new manager and they had let go the previous person in charge of cybersecurity and then said, you know, hey, we just got our, rid of our head of security. How would you feel about taking on security? And I like didn't hesitate. I said, absolutely. <laughs> so that's kind of where it fell into my lap, so to speak. But that goes back to that transparency that I was talking about. Like, look, you know, I have very little experience in this. I'm coming from a, a governance risk and compliance background. So just be aware. But, you know, absolutely. I'm interested in, in taking the role.
1: So I think there's two directions on this. I love both of them. One, you absolutely so let, let's let's break it into to the first piece, which I think is you, you alluded to this on the transparency piece, but I, I love this. You're like, hey, I, I don't know. I've never done this before. And, you know, I don't, you didn't actually say this, but I'm going to put it in because it's funny. Uh, you say, hey, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And they're like, yeah, that's cool. I mean, you, so on one hand, I think you have to, I would recommend to anyone listening that's in a similar role. It's like, hey, would you also do this? Because you, you took the job. You're going to move your family. You're moving to a new place, new company, new, new, new. And to be head of GRC, which is, by the way, for those that haven't done it, is enough of a pain in the ass as is. And then they just they've, and then it's like, hey, I'm going to do this whole. So you just agreed to do two jobs, new, new like everything's new. So break that down a little bit for the listener, if you would. Have you ever thought I should have said no, or is there ever a case when you would have said no, or is it yes all the way and you just roll with it and you just see where the chips fall?
0: Well, yes, that's a very good question. I think my younger self was ambitious. And that's why I was 100% in. I I wanted to get into that. Looking at it now, I would not suggest that, <laughs> mainly because where security has come and the responsibilities that have come along with it. So back then, there wasn't all this concern around, you know, we, we're not seeing things like what we're seeing with, you know, the Uber CISO, right? <laughs> and some other some other people that are, and other other regulatory challenges that are coming down around the responsibilities of cybersecurity. Back then, there wasn't much, so I was all 100% in, plus I was a little smarter, a little, a little less smarter, maybe, so to speak. But yeah, I mean, you know, for me, it was 100% in because I knew it's what I wanted to do. But, you know, I, I was 100% transparent, and I think that was the key.
1: Yeah, and so there's still a ton we could go down that path, but I want to switch then to the other side. Did you ever, again, for those listening, um, and we're talking about a point in time in the past, but this still happens today, so it's it's a little different. But the younger version of Steve probably wouldn't have thought of this, but older gray Steve thinks, Hey, I'm having a weekend lunch. I'm getting ready to go in. I'm getting comfortable with my new boss. You know, I'm having a sandwich and they just double my position because they just happened to let go this other dude who I don't know and no disrespect to anybody. But I'm like, in my mind, it, it doesn't make any sense because they're just going to give me all this other responsibility. And like, what value do they put on InfoSec if they're like, hey, we got this other new guy, let's just give it to him. And do you want to take it or, or double it and give it to someone else? Right. Kind of like the, the, the joke like that would not have creeped into my mind then looking at it now. I've been like, wait a minute. Like, so are you asking me the question I would ask is, is this is this until we backfill that position or okay, if I have both of these roles, does that mean I can hire lieutenants under me that I have one that's, so I'm in charge and I'm going to have a GRC lead and a security lead or a DRC manager? Is that like old me would have been like, yeah, done. Let's do it. No other negotiation. Like, let's party. But like, how, did that ever creep into your mind either then? And it's okay if it didn't, or did you look back on it and think, damn, I should have said, I should have
0: managed that Oh I look, I look back and think of many things that I would be doing I mean again I was I was literally just coming from an individual contributor to a leader like overnight, right? So for me that was there was a lot of things that I just, you know, what kind of budget do I have? What was this former person actually doing? Do I well I have a you like said do Well I have a team. They <laughs> they that, that, he did mention at least had a team. So I I I think I would have teased that out a little bit more. What is the team doing? really what I found out is when I hit the ground running on Monday was it was a team of security administrators, <laughs> right? They really didn't understand what a security program was. The previous person, and this is absolutely no offense to the person at all. I mean, this is what was being done back then in many organizations was it was a policy generator, right? You document policies, everyone else shall follow. And so I think that was probably part of the you know the challenge is, is you know all they saw was policy output versus running an organization, and is, and they didn't really have an organization. They had security administration, and they thought that was security. So, so yeah, you know, looking back on it, I would have been asking probably numerous things. One, will I have a budget? Two, will I get an increase in pay? Because, <laughs> like you said, I mean that was I already had a big enough responsibility coming in the GRC. My main role they had just come out of bankruptcy was to get them compliant they were having all kinds of it issues with socks so it took me
1: the better part of it almost 2 years to get them to a stable state just in that right which is a which is a hell of a task when you're having to go back and use a framework to evaluate a company that's new to you that has that needs to become compliant there's all these deficiencies you have to get people moving and now funny enough which I think is a huge conflict of interest, funny enough, as I think about it, and this just now dawned on me, I didn't think of it initially, you have a security team, like you are in a GRC role, you are evaluating, you might be evaluating yourself. And that, you know, audit subcommittee for the board might look at that and be like, what in the hell? Yeah, that was, um, again, I think it
0: was just so new to the organization. This first two years were Really, I mean, it was all in on GRC at the time. It was really just to get us there. But you know, I I did to your point. I mean, it wasn't necessarily a conflict of interest. What I did was um, after two years and maybe two, ah, it might have been the third year, we had a change in leadership within the CIO, and I created my really my own risk framework to assess risk. I knew there was a new CIO coming in, and I figured this new CIO was going to want to know what the environment looks like. So it was a and end end enterprise risk. When I say enterprise, I'm doing air quotes. It's IT enterprise risk across the entire enterprise. Which gl- Dana is a global company, so that's 26 countries. I think we had 120 yeah. It's So pretty big effort. But that risk assessment is what that full end end risk assessment. What came out of that was that security was we needed more resources, and not just security administrator. So that was kind of instrumental into starting
1: building the program at Dana. Taking a pause. On Dana, and by the way, this is all point in time conversation, and you're no longer at Dana. So, anyone who's listening from them, I mean, this is all an evaluation of point in time uh, story. This is a things are very different now today, and I think that for purposes of education, just sharing these scenarios because this is kind of the wild west that everyone experienced in security and in doing early days of GRC. But using your past experiences and present experience, uh, I'm very big on interviewing specifically mike like i get CISOs on here that will often say damn i wish i had asked a b or c when i interviewed and i just didn't i d- I forgot to a- i didn't cover something when they asked me if i had que- i didn't push hard enough on x what do you think are a handful of questions that an aspiring or a new ciso should make sure they always ask
0: yeah i think us. A- and this is something I did ask before coming to Scripps: was what's the purpose of the role? Why why is this role being created, or why why does it exist? For Scripps, it was a new CISO was new. They had not, in fact, I think it may have been one of the first in the industry within the broadcast industry. So that was my big question: is why? What's the purpose of the role? Why is CISO now? And then also, you know, following up very closely with that is what what type of approach does the company take to you know, implementing new things. And what I mean by that is like, you know, I noticed big differences from company to company. Dana, Dana was a manufacturing company. As a manufacturing company, you're very accustomed to ISO standards, which means you understand procedures, you understand compliance, you understand things go beyond just socks compliance, right? Is what kind of what I'm getting there is many, many different requirements. You know, I think a big challenge I had at Scripps was all we had was SOX really. PCI was pretty much outsourced when you start you know, taking you know, because we all got smarter, we put payment processing out to third parties. So you got to understand what you're getting to, into. Fortunately for me, I knew scripts already. So I knew what I was getting myself into, but you, you really got to kind of understand what's the culture of the company for, you know, implementing new things. So, you know, digging around, having deeper questions, not what just the hiring manager, but also understanding what a culture is like by Requesting to to interview more people, and to kind of tease that out is how do you handle challenges at this company? You know things like that because in cybersecurity we're always asking again people to do things that they really just don't want to (laughs) do.
1: You hit on something there. I think I think this is what you meant. We're going to clarify. Interviewing, asking to interview with more people. Like, look, I know most people in a in an executive search, you're going to spend a lot of time, and you're going to have what feels like too many interviews anyway. But the other bit of advice I've received as a product of this show is make sure that you have a wide breadth of interviews to ask the things that you just asked. So what is your approach to new things? What is the culture to ask many different areas that you think would be constituents? What is your expectation of me? And I think maybe the most important, well, maybe not the most, but one of the most important questions or topics is what is your definition of success with this position? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that, that's just what I've, that's what I've gathered of doing almost 90 hours of conversations with brilliant folks like yourself of security leaders. And so this is not my, I didn't invent this, but I think that what is, your, what is your description of success? Or the other one is, is what do you want this to look like maybe in one year? Everyone wants to do it, everyone wants a 90-day plan, but what does this look like in one year? there yeah I, th- I think
0: my definition of success would be and specifically within uh, what we do is and this just doesn't sound like cliche but it's it's really being truly aligned to the business and and being and I'm trying to do that even some of the things we're working on now I'm I'm, I'm actually getting engaged in strategic projects that the company's working on that will really perpetuate and move us forward and continue I mean we're a 140 plus year old company and we constantly reinvent ourselves. So it's really to be on that bleeding edge of where the company's headed and, and helping helping move the company forward securely, but also being, you know, my definition of success would be being seen as beyond just security. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. That, that look, security, yeah, we're protecting the company, but we're also adding value
1: to the company. So I think that, being seen, especially so that that applies to the program, but also the individual. So when you go into these rooms, let me let me peel this onion back a little bit from based on what I've heard. The first is being engaged, and sometimes it's difficult to be. So be in the rooms where those decisions are made. Be in those project decision, those strategy discussions. Maybe even ahead of time before there's a project. So be in the strategy talk. Uh, have resources available. But the other thing is, I think is is understanding. I talked about this on an earlier show. Kind of the currency of the company, like what is their language? What are the motivators? Who are the people that make money for the company? Like what are the profit centers? All these things. And I feel like a lot of people don't do those steps first, but then try to engage in the projects, but not necessarily the strategy. And there's high friction. Every company is different. And I'm speaking in very general terms. But all that said, it, it's easy to say, but it's very difficult, very difficult to do. So can you list, can you t- share a couple of things you try to do? I mean, you're, how did you get, you didn't start off being involved in these more strategic talks, like for the listener, what sort of step zero or step one of that? Like if they're thinking like, that all sounds great, but Mike, how the hell do I get started? Yeah. I mean, I've, and I can't remember where I heard this. I found
0: this somewhere, maybe in a, a conference or. A stakeholder engagement map is something I kind of start off with with any new company. Now I don't do a great great job probably of keeping that up to date, but that's essentially finding out you know who has influence in the organization, who's going to scream, who's going to be the squeaky wheel, right? You need to know both. You need to know who can move things, who who's got you know good reputation, delivers on results, and a lot of people look at this person, this individual. You know, somebody you probably want to touch base with frequently and have a regular interaction just to, even if it's coffee, even if it's five minutes, 10 minutes, it's just to stay up to date kind of with what's going on. The squeaky wheels are the people that, you know, you want to get on board before you really even start thinking about doing anything and get their input and take on, on whatever initiative or whatever plan you, you plan on working through, because if you can get the squeaky wheel on your side, it's not going to be squeaky. It'll be smooth sailing, so to speak, So. You know, I think that's step zero is really, and it may take you time. You're not going to know right away. Obviously, if you're new to an organization, you're going to have to, over time, figure that out. There's going to be natural things based within the organization structure that you know are people that are important. But then there's the underlying political side of things, right? Where someone may have a title. They may have, they may appear to be very important with the organization. But after a meeting's done, said and done, there might be some uh, conversations on the side about, yeah, you know. No one listens to so-and-so. You know what I mean? So I think that's the step zero piece. And then keeping in touch uh, with those ones that are, those individuals that are high influencers or or squeaky whales. Or one last thing, sorry, the creatives. (laughs) The creatives can also, they can be great, but they they can create great things, but they can also create a lot of trouble for you because they're not thinking about sustainability and operations.
1: Yeah, they're, Typically, if they're a creative, that, which is necessary and needed, but a lot of times creatives are bad at execution. Which, in the other tip, and I may have talked about this in the past, but even avoiding title, one of the first things I did years ago in a very big company was, and well, I shouldn't apologize, I won't apologize for my language, but I went around and I asked, I was like, hey, across all these frameworks, I was like, who are the people, Not not the director, not the manager, not the VP, but just in general, who are the people that just get shit done? like who are the give me your names of the people and i built that list and it's it's not the stakeholder map you're talking about it's the people that are the doers for the stakeholders and if those folks are engaged even though they don't have the title they are the influencer to the stakeholder and if they're engaged and they're happy and you have them maybe even as an advocate it can improve your chances of solving difficult problems i guess i'll phrase it that way so the way I would introduce it and say hey if you're brand new I know whatever my next gig is that'll be the one of the first questions I ask say hey who are the people here that just get shit done whether it's an audit compliance whatever user provisioning take your pick vulnerability management you know give me those folks and then then begin there start developing relationships there that's the other additional advice I think I'd add so uh, anything else on that point before we transition to another uh, topics. I, there's more I want to ask you.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. The only thing to add to that, you, you also got to look at the organization. Is like, is it a culture of the leader of whatever it may be? People don't do anything until the leader acknowledges. Yep, what needs to be done. I mean, the, the doers may want to get the do doing done, but if the leader is not aligned, <laughs> that sometimes can can backfire. So, but I mean, I totally agree though. I mean, knowing those movers and shakers, they're the ones you want to get close to because. Once you get that acknowledgement that, yeah, this is important,
1: oh man, yeah, you can get a lot of stuff done. I would, a lot of times I'd be on a call with other VPs and I kind of figured out it's different in every company, but if I had one person that would break silence and say, yeah, that's a good idea, or yeah, I support that, only one, there could be 29 people on the call. But if I had one other person to say, yep, that sounds good. We've talked about this. This is, this is good. Didn't matter who it was. I had almost a 90% chance of success of having that approval to move forward. And so the point to have, if you can have one advocate that in addition to being an advocate will speak up, if you can count on that, I think you're no matter what type of call it is, so that it's, and I, I learned this the hard way, I and mean, I know this is a very tactical example, but if you can think ahead of the important meeting. And say, hey, you're going to be asked to present something. If you have one person, boy, it makes a world of difference in this sort of, especially if you're new. Absolutely. Get that snowball effect, right? Right, right, right. And people are like, oh, well, he socialized this and this is, is a good idea, you know, on and on. So I like asking this question of, I think, most of the guests we've gotten around to it, maybe not all. But. What's the worst advice, the worst career advice you've ever received? Or it may not be the worst because it's just bad in general, but there's also a lot of times where it's well meaning like they actually are trying to help you, but it's still bad advice. So it's still net net bad, but like is there any any advice you've received that you would want the listener to, you know, think twice or maybe reevaluate?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's not just I think you hear this a lot, but it's the fake it until you make it, right? I, I think it's got well intentions in the, the saying is that, you know, again, I've talked about kind of be comfortable being uncomfortable. I think that's kind of what this is trying to get out of. I've, I've had numerous people early in my career say, say that, especially in the, in the big four, that was a big thing, right? Is you're junior, you're green, and you, you don't know a lot until you really get into the field. So I did hear that quite a bit there, but I think for me, that's just bad overall career advice. Again, well intention, but it, to me, it breeds distrust, and I think it's a faster track to. Uh, and I even had this a little bit. I don't know if we talked about this yet, but imposter syndrome, right? That if you really fake it, and and you're faking it, that you you know what you're doing. I mean, that's a quick way to feel like you're an imposter. So I think I learned this later on, especially Dana. I think I talked about transparency there, explaining that look, there's not a whole lot of knowledge here. I'm going to need some support. One thing I found that was very interesting with that by being more transparent, not really faking it until you make it, was that it, it engaged others in your success. By being that transparent, having humility actually brought others closer to me to help me be successful because they understood that I didn't know everything, but man, they really had some knowledge in a space that could, one, they could expose and help out and help me, you know, move my career and the, in the uh, company forward. So I think coming across as authentic, you're going to engage others in success. And again, believe it or not, people do generally do want to help you.
1: (laughs) They don't want to see people fail in general. It's authenticity, I think, is one of the rarest elements in the professional world. And if you can do things to sort of engender that in the eyes of others and do it in a real way, I think that's one of the fastest formulas of of success. And, And to be able to say things like we talked about earlier, like, I don't know, I'm not sure, but we're going to figure that out.
0: Right. I mean, like at the end of the day, it's like no one's fully prepared to take on the next role, next level, whatever it may be. And no one's got all the answers. But if you act like you've got all the answers, that's the fastest way to become a one one man or one woman band, right? With zero
1: support. <laughs> exactly. One sort of caveat to that, though, I was just uh, helped facilitate a panel earlier in the week. I think it's okay if you're not fully prepared, like if you're only 50% qualified for a job, it's okay right but I think that what you're saying is is that you just have to be have that transparency to say like here's the 50% that's a stretch for me <laughs> but here's my proven track record to sort of back up the fact that I can grow into that
0: Exactly I mean I, yeah well, you, you don't want to go in and saying I can't do the job because that I mean there's confidence in being having humility about what you know and what you don't know but to your point, you've done things to get to where you're at. so highlight those things that you know you can do you can you know you've had a track record you've done XYZ, so you know that you can do this job. You just got to have that confidence, but also be transparent about maybe there are some weaknesses. You know, obviously you don't expose every single weakness, especially in a new company, new organization. You know, I think you still want to go with the strong positions, but, you know, once you land that, be, you know, look, look for support, look for others that will strengthen where you have weaknesses.
1: Mike, I got one more question for you. Uh, we close every show on it, pursuant to the name of it, uh, the new CISO. What does being a new CISO mean to you?
0: Yeah, for me, it's, you know, once you're getting to this level, it, it's getting closer to the organization's strategic direction and it's, it's being a part of that. So, you know, for me, it's a chance to take a leadership role and helping shape the strategic direction of the company and and really taking it to the next level in terms of security is just not a back office thing. And IT also in general, yeah. I see as a not a back office thing, I think ransomware has proven that every technology is every company is a technology company. So for me it's it's really being being a part of the strategic direction of the company and moving us forward.
1: Excellent comments. Thank you so much for your insights today. I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Steve. Take care. That is it for this episode of the New CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.